We're going to continue now with Genesis chapter 8, where God makes some remarkable promises, not just to his people, but to everybody. So if you would please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word, this is from Genesis chapter 8, starting at verse 20. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and all your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that it is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our minds to it, Lord. Show us, help us to answer some of the difficult questions about how uh, you relate to the creation, how we are to relate to people who don't believe in you. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to understand uh, so many different things, Lord? This passage illuminates us, so we pray that you would do that, Lord. Help us to see the beauty of Jesus in it and what he's done for us. Uh, And we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate us, Lord. Without the Holy Spirit, we would have no hope of understanding. 
And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Most of you know uh, a little bit about my story anyways. Prior to becoming a Christian, uh, I was horrifically entrapped in drug addiction, and, um, and I could not get sober to save my life. Tried over and over again. Tried repeatedly. Could not get sober to save my life until one moment, in a, in a moment of sincere humility, I prayed to the God that I didn't know and didn't understand and didn't trust, and I asked him to help me, and he removed the obsession of my, of my drug abuse. And I don't mean like, you know, over time. I mean like that. It was gone. And uh, 18 years later, here I am. Uh, you know, and prior to becoming a Christian, my interpretation of that event was that since God did such a wonderful thing for me, that must mean that we were okay. That I was on, that me and God were solid, that our relationship was solid, and it must mean that I was, in one way or another, that I was saved, that when I died, I would go to the good place, not the bad place, or at least that I was in relationship with God. Uh, There was no question that it was God that had healed me, and therefore, I was convinced that we were all good. And it wasn't, that's not just my story. That was the story of so many people I knew. Hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of of drug addicts. I knew one guy, a hope to die heroin addict, Satanist, prayed that same kind of prayer in the middle of the throes of the worst like heroin uh, withdrawal. If you know anything about withdrawal from opiates. It's incredibly painful. And in, in the middle of, the, of that withdrawal, he prayed that prayer in humility, and his withdrawal symptoms disappeared. And I don't mean like over the course of a couple days. I mean like right now. Disappeared. Uh, I knew so many people like that, and they had the same idea that, you know, their nebulous version of God, how whatever they thought about God, the fact that God had been obviously kind to them in that way was prima facie evidence that they were in right relationship with the Creator. So you can imagine, like, after I became a Christian, it starts to bother me. I'm like, oh, how is that even, how is that possible? How, how do I explain that? How do I explain... Um, because it seems obvious to me that this is God working, but he's working in the lives of people who are either apathetic or just out, really outright or vocal about hating him, and yet he still seems to be obvious that God is doing these remarkably kind acts in the lives of, of, of these people. How do I explain that to myself, and then how do I enter into conversation with them about Jesus when they're already convinced that they're right with God because of this event how do I even approach the, uh, you know, the idea that maybe they're not, right? Because it seems so clear and so obvious, just as it did to me. <sighs> maybe you know somebody like that. Maybe you have somebody who you know who's not a Christian. Maybe you even know somebody who is vocally not Christian. <laughs> and yet you've seen, like God, do something remarkable in their lives. Uh, or maybe you know somebody, you know, thinking about it in a different way, Maybe you know somebody who's just like a 
un, like a really good person, like unnaturally good, just like overflowing with virtue and utterly hates the Christian religion. I, you know, not, I have a friend who does not, he doesn't hate the Christian religion, but he's, uh, he's a Muslim. He's one of the best guys I know, like literally the kind of guy that would give you the shirt off his back. Uh, how do we explain how it is that people who aren't Christian can be and often are morally superior to people who are Christian? How do we talk about and how do we even think about uh, people, artists, who are able to create like deep beauty in you know, bring you to the verge of tears kind of beauty and art who don't know God at all. Uh, how do we think about philosophers who like uncover such deep wisdom and, and seem to have a grasp of such deep knowledge and have no relationship with God? How do we you know, maybe you know people like that. Maybe you've wondered that yourself and left your, even left scratching your head, like, how do I even think about, how do I think this stuff through? This passage that we've uh, just read really gives us a lot of answers as to how that is. What is God's relationship to his creation in general? What is God's attitude towards people, even people who hate him? And therefore, then that informs us about what our attitude should be towards people who hate God, maybe even towards people who hate us, or people who are at least, uh, you know, even uh, neutral, or people who are not Christian. What is our relationship, what's our attitude towards them supposed to be? This passage answers a lot of those big questions. And the first thing it tells us is this, is that God loves and cares for his creation no matter what. That God loves and cares for his creation no matter what, especially those who bear his image. Listen to this, uh, listen to this passage again. Listen to verse 9 and verse 22 again. Uh, this, is what, this is what this says, what we just read. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you. And it says, even though I know that mankind will continue to be evil from his youth, nothing's going to change. And yet, God says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What did, we, what did you just see there? We saw God making a covenant with people, right? A covenant is, it's an oath-bound promise that God makes with his people. And the, but the big question is, once you see a covenant, you have to figure out what kind of covenant is this? What's being said? What's being promised in this covenant between God and man? Because there are some different ones. But what do we see? What do we see? The big things that are promised in this covenant. The first one is God promises continuing uh, providential care of his creation. Providential means how, like, God works normally in and through nature, okay, as opposed to miraculous, where God 
works outside of the laws of nature. Providentially, he calls, he says, he's promising to everybody to continue the care of creation, to continue to produce stability in nature and stability in the universe, right? We come from a culture which tends to think about the universe as a machine that's been wound up and that kind of operates on itself. But the Bible says that's not necessarily true. The Bible says that God, in the power of God, really the power of Christ, is holding together constantly all the constituent elements uh, of the subatomic world, really, in order to allow nature to continue. And so God is promising that he's going to continue to actively uphold the continuation of nature so that everyone is able to enjoy the sun. Uh, everyone is able to enjoy the produce of the earth. Everyone is able to enjoy the food and everything good that the earth produces. I came in like face to face uh, with this reality once. I was, on an, I was on an extended fast. We used to belong to this church and they were all about fasting. So we were doing this long fast, long fast. And I was at work, right? I was painting cars at the time trying to get through Bible college. And I remember the food truck came and like everybody just descended upon the food truck like flies and everybody's grabbing their burritos and grabbing their hamburgers and grabbing all their food. And I'm sitting there in the, in the repair bay just salivating, just watching them, everybody eat. And it struck me that everybody was just, it was so clear to me that God was the one providing that food. And I, I can't even explain how I knew that. It wasn't like I had visions of like the farmers and the process, the industrial process of creating food. But the one thing that was utterly clear to me was that God was the one who had provided that goodness and that blessing, which was really uh, present with me since I hadn't eaten for a long time, right? And the other thing that struck me was how much uh, everybody was just grabbing that food with no consideration of God whatsoever. And so God promises that even though the evil of men's hearts are, uh, men's hearts are evil from their youth, and that no one's going to care, no one's going to give him credit for it, he still promises to continue to provide the blessing of the earth. The second thing he promises is to provide uh, providential restraint of sin. We see this in this passage. The clearest, the clearest part we see is the, uh, the institution of capital punishment as a deterrent against murder. You know, we saw in the old world, murder was out of hand, and in the new world, God puts together Law. Really, the, the rabbis, when they look at this passage, they are able to pull out seven foundational laws for civic order uh, that God is instituting here, not for the Jews, but for all of, all, of, all of the world, for everybody, for the Gentiles. The clearest one is obviously capital punishment as a deterrent to hold and restrain sin in check. But a stronger thing God is doing, if we, when we start flushing this out throughout the rest of the Bible, what God is promising, an even stronger and an unseen deterrent that God is producing and providing is what Paul calls, uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says that God 
has written the moral law on everyone's heart. And that moral law on everyone's heart uh, gives everyone a sense of right and wrong uh, and a sense that right is usually better than wrong, although we still obviously have evil in the world. And, and through that, it says the Holy Spirit is restraining people's hearts from being as evil as they would be otherwise. Not just Christians, but everybody. That's what's mind-blowing about this passage to me as you start digging it out. Is it starts to paint a picture of how involved God's Spirit is uh, throughout the entire world. And, God, what, and, and, the, and the things that God is doing, that God, by the power of His Spirit, restrains mankind by the law written on their heart from being as evil as we would be otherwise. And how, how do we know this? There was a movie, I think, in the early 80s, maybe late 70s, now, it had to been mid-80s, called Jacob's Ladder. And it was a movie about a Vietnam veteran who'd returned from the war, uh, and his unit, his, his special forces unit, was given a hallucinogenic, an experimental hallucinogenic drug called Jacob's Ladder. And the purpose of this drug was to remove all moral restraint so that they would be ultra-vicious in battle. And as the storyline goes on, what, you, what we find out is that they, they took the drug and not only it worked, but it worked too well. They, their moral restraint was so completely lifted that they didn't care who they attacked. They turned on one another and, it, and, they, and they killed one another before they even saw an enemy. And we see the same thing happening in the, in the Old Testament. Quite often in the conquests, especially the wars of the conquests of the Canaanites, when Israel marches out for battle, they don't fight. The Lord says, you will stand and see the victory of the Lord on your behalf. They come out, they stand, and the opposing army all of a sudden turns on one another and rips each other apart. And that produces the victory. What is that but God removing all moral restraint from people and allowing us to be as wicked as we would be outside of the Spirit's influence? The third big thing that this covenant is promising is to be continue. God promises to continue his providential blessing to mankind. Uh, when you see these, when it says, it's talking to Noah and his sons to be fruitful and to, be multi and to multiply and to fill the earth, it's recalling the story in the first chapter, or, the third, or, the, or in Genesis, first chapter of Genesis, where God says these same things and, and gives man uh, what we call the cultural mandate. He calls mankind to go out and explore uh, and unlock all the secrets of the earth and to create great art, to create medicine, to create culture, create technology, to subdue and have dominion over the earth. And in that, pro in, in that program, God, through his spirit, is promising to advance and to empower us to do that. What's incredible about this is that after the fall, God continues that cultural mandate, we are, that plan is still continuing. However, it's not just 
God's people, it's God's people and all the world doing it together. And so what this is really saying, when you flush it out, is that all the great art, science, medicine, technology, all of that goodness that people produce, non-Christians and Christians alike, is all being produced through the influencing of the Holy Spirit and the advancing as God advances human culture. Which means that like, when you see someone like Sam Harris cursing God, he's doing it with the breath that God has put in his lungs, with the body that God has given him, with the intellect and the ability and the logical skills to create the arguments that he's created. He's doing it all on the power of the things that God has given him to do that. So what is this? What are we, what are we talking about here? This is... This is a covenant that God is making with everybody. And he makes that really clear by including all the animals, right? Even the creeping things, even the spiders are included in this covenant. And so theologians call this the covenant of common grace, meaning not common in the sense that it's mundane, but common in the sense that it includes everyone. And it's grace because it's God unleashing and and bestowing upon all the earth, believer and unbeliever alike, his uh, goodness and his love through all of these areas. And the sign he gives, again, to make sure we understand this is for everybody, it's the rainbow and the cloud. We see that rainbow, uh, which is really a picture of a war bow turned upside down, facing towards God, uh, and it's a sign for us to, to remember whenever we see that rainbow, God says, when you see the rainbow, remember that I will remember my promise and I will, I will promise to do all these things. And so that really, man, that explains a lot, doesn't it? Uh, how are unbelievers able to create such great art? Because God's power And the Spirit is like working in and through them in conjunction with their natural gifts to create beauty and to create art. And then we as Christians can participate in that and enjoy it. Uh, You know, I used to be so terrified. One of the things that kept me from becoming a Christian was I thought I wouldn't be able to listen to the Ramones anymore. You know, but what do we know? God creates and helps the creation of great art like the Ramones, and we can enjoy and participate in that. Uh, what do we do? How do we think about, how do we see that people that, don't, that aren't Christian have such wisdom and insight and philosophy? Same reason, spirit. Uh, how do we see uh, God enables people to do that, all people? How do we see, um, you know, how are we able to see that people who do not believe in God or do not, are not Christian, are able to pierce so deeply into the mechanics of creation through the sciences because God is empowering everyone to do that. Uh, why is it that we see people that are such paragons of virtue that aren't Christian? It's because God has written the moral law on everyone's heart. Why is it that drug addicts that hate God are struck sober with one sincere prayer? 
It's because that's just how, that's how God rolls. Paul says, do you not know, do you not know that it's God's kindness and forbearance and patience that is meant to lead you into repentance? God is in the business of doing kind things for people who don't believe in him, even people who are opposed to him, just for the asking so that he can give them like a, like a foretaste. This is how good I am. You can trust me. Uh, but is that kindness that God shows and all of that that God does, is that obvious evidence that everyone's in a right relationship with God? No, it's not. Of course not. God has the freedom and the, and, and the right to bestow goodness and love on his creation, but that still doesn't answer the big problem that we have, why we are separated from God, our, the moral guilt that we all have because of sin. And there's only one thing in the entire Bible that is able to address that, uh, and that is nothing but the blood of Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yeah. Listen, um, if you look, you know, if you've, you pay attention to like the $20 bills and the $100 bills that we get, they keep changing, right? They get, it used to be like a $20 bill, it's just kind of like, you know, monochrome, and then they put that, you know, little strip in it, and then, then they put the, like, the tracking device in it, you know about that, right? <laughs> And then they change the color up and the paper color and all this new technology into the bills. Why? Why do they do that? Why are they continuing to do that? It's because what do we value, what do we value most as a culture? Money. And so we have a vested interest uh, to do everything in our power to make sure that that money is unique, that it's unmistakable, that it is number one on a list of one. It is completely unlike anything else so that no one would mistake any counterfeit for the real thing. And God does the same thing with the blood of Jesus throughout the Bible. When it comes to the blood of Christ, it is utterly unique. There's nothing else like it. It is number one on a list of one. Listen to what God says. You miss it if you're not paying real close attention in verse three. And God's saying that he was giving everything to the people. He says, I give you everything, but you shall not eat the flesh with its life. That is its blood. Now, it'd be real easy to just kind of glaze over that and say, okay, that's just one of those weird obscure things about the Old Testament, you know, they aren't eating blood, okay? Except for the fact that God makes a big deal about this, this prohibition on eating or drinking any kind of blood, uh, he makes a big deal about it throughout the whole Bible. Look at, in Leviticus, uh, it says, it shall be a statute forever throughout all your generations, not a strange, obscure law from one period in history. In verse, or Leviticus 17, he repeats it again, but now he gives a reason. Don't drink the blood because it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, in the Old Testament, they would sacrifice animals. And the sacrifice of this animal, the shedding of this animal's blood, the animal was judged in your place. 
people would take the animal, they would put their hands on the head of the animal, and that symbolized all their sin being transferred to the animal. Then the animal would be slaughtered, the animal would be put on the altar and burned, uh, and that the smoke would go up to God, and God would see that the person's sin had been atoned for. And so he's making, uh, you know, he's saying there's a specific purpose for this blood. And only use it for that one thing. Don't you use it for anything else. It's not a health concern. Uh, It accomplishes something. And in the New Testament, you would think it's easy easy for us to, to say, okay, that's part of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, animal sacrifice, but all that's been, uh, all that's been you know, done away with when Jesus came, right? Jesus was a picture of the animal, or the animals were a picture of Jesus and his ultimate and once for all sacrifice for us. So now that that's done, all these laws don't have anything, you know, they're all gone, right? Except in Acts chapter 15, when the, all the Jews get together and try and figure out what they are going to have to require the Gentiles to do who are becoming Christian, they give a couple, you know, they say a couple things that make total sense, but then they say in the middle of it, don't drink the blood. New Testament to Gentiles. It continues into the New Testament. Why is that? You know, if you read uh, various commentaries, they'll just be like, well, because the life, uh, blood signifies life, and God wants humans to respect life, and so therefore when you slaughter an animal, you're giving respect to the animal by not, it's so vague, Uh, it's so vague for something that is so prevalent throughout the entire Bible, everywhere, from beginning to end, the Bible forbids consuming or drinking of blood, everywhere, from beginning to end, except for one place. You know what that is? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Now, that sounds weird to us, right? If someone... Culturally, we don't like have recipes, you know, that have a lot of blood in them. Unless you, you know, you come. I have, a, I had a friend of mine, Filipino friend of mine, used to take me down to the restaurant in National City, and he'd get this like blood sausage, and you know, with blood gravy, and and uh, you know, we'd eat that. But typically, uh, at least in white culture, just the thought about drinking blood is kind of gross. You think it's like you know, vampires or Satanists or, you know, you know, heavy metalers or something like that, you know? <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> there's so much talk about blood in the Bible that sometimes I get, like, freaked out about bringing visitors because they'd be like, why do you guys, why are you guys so, like, uh, f- fascinated with blood and drinking blood? Even in the, in the early church, they called the thought the Christians were cannibals because of the Eucharistic language. They thought people were actually like eating human flesh and drinking blood in early Christian worship services. Why? Because it's so prevalent. What is going on? It sounds so weird to us, but imagine how weird and just 
disrupting that would have sounded to the Jewish audience who had been raised from birth with their moms telling them, you will never, ever eat blood, never, ever drink blood. It's one of the cardinal sins against Yahweh. And yet here's Jesus saying, if you don't drink my blood, you don't have eternal life. Uh, That went over so well that Jesus went from 5,000 plus followers to 12 over the course of one sermon. Talk about a Scottish revival. How would that go over? And so to the Jews, it was just obvious, indisputable evidence that Jesus was insane. But what does it tell us? It tells us that God is so intent on making sure that the blood of Jesus is utterly unique. It is unmistakable. It is number one on a list of one. And why is that? Because it's the only thing that can do what it does. Your good works can't do it. Your productivity schedule can't do it. Your religious rites and ritual can't do it. Your crystals and essential oils can't do it. The only thing that can do it, like the old hymn says, is nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's no other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Man, and God wants to hammer that, hammer that into our minds. There is nothing else. There is nothing else. You see, does does God love his creatures? Yes. Does God love people? Yes. And we should be talking about that, you know? My my friend uh, Sammy, our deacon Sammy this morning was talking to me out front, and he was like, I don't care if you hate me, I just want to know, I want to make sure that you know that God loves you. And that should be how our our attitude, you know, we should be focused on helping people understand what God is really like. Uh, But none of that, as much as God loves us, none of that puts even a dent in the bigger problem. None of it even puts a dent in the big problem of moral guilt. We are corrupted in our nature. It's not just the stuff we do. Sin isn't just the things we do. Sin is the thing about us that makes us do those things. Why is it that we continue to do the things we don't want to do, the things we do want to do, we can't do? Uh, Our nature is corrupt. In the Old Testament, God gave the Jews a picture in the animal sacrifice. Like I said, you put your hands on the head of this animal, all your sins would be transferred to it, the animal would be judged in your place, sentenced, and the the sentence would be carried out, executed. And then the animal would be burnt, the whole animal would be burnt on the altar before the fire, and providentially, this, in this passage is the very first example of the whole burnt offering. When it says, when, Mo, when Noah gets off the 
ark and makes an offering to the God, uh, to God, it's a technical word. It's a technical word for sacrifice that means the whole burnt offering that later Leviticus says is for an atonement of sins. Noah, Noah, righteous Noah, is getting off the boat, and the first thing he's doing is acknowledging we are sinners, we need the forgiveness of God, we need someone else to be judged in our place and to take our sins away in order to to be in right relationship with God. It's the only thing that can do it. It's the only thing that does. And so, you know, we know that that animal sacrifice, the blood of bulls and goats could never really atone for sin. It was only a picture of the blood of Jesus shed for us as Jesus was judged in our place on the cross for our sins, which atoned and covered our sins and made us righteous before God, allows us to be in right relationship with him. So really, there's, there's only two choices. Like it or not, one day when you die, you're going to stand in front of God and be judged for everything you've done, everything you've said, everything you've thought. Uh, and there's only two options. You can either be judged based on what you have done, or you can be judged based on what Jesus has done for you. And so God's love really extends. That offer is open to everyone to trust in what Jesus has done, that his death paid the penalty for our sin. Um, and that we can have right relationship with God, but it only comes through the blood of Jesus. So what is that? I've been talking to you know, people who don't believe in Jesus. Let's talk, let's talk to us. Let's have an in-house conversation now to close this out. What does that mean for us? What is all this that we just talked about? What does it mean for us as Christians? How are we called to approach the world and approach people who are outside of the faith? Well, let me, let me, uh, I'm going to use polite language because we're in mixed company right now. Otherwise, I might not as we talk about the blight on the Christian faith known as the Westboro Baptist Church who have made, uh, have become famous by uh, their preaching to the world, not the gospel, but preaching to the world that God hates them. God hates everyone who's not a Christian. They stand, they, they, they stand outside of uh, funerals for people with signs saying, you know, and, and proclaiming that this person is suffering God's judgment, he's going to hell for what he's done, and there may be some truth in some of what they're saying, but, uh, man, they are an awful picture of what happens when um, Christians lose sight of the, of the, of, of the fact that God, in, in his common grace to all, loves all of his creations and is good to all of his creation and calls us to do the same, right? And obviously the Westboro Baptist Church is, you know, the archetype, the, the epitome of that kind of awfulness, but that mentality of us versus them, it really filters down and affects us in, in far, far bigger ways than I think we want to admit. We see it in our media, we see it on social media, you see it in even pundits, uh, uh, people who have a voice in the church, 
oftentimes there's this us against them vibe where we are the God's people and our mission is to shut them down uh, or to stay as far away from them as we possibly can. We are good, they're bad. But listen to what, listen to what God says. This is from Matt, this was Jesus speaking to us. From Matthew 5, God calls us to be salt and light in the world. What does it say? Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's not, no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So he's talking about two things, salt and light. What's the salt? I think the salt is we hold to the truth. Uh, This became super apparent to me as I witnessed and watched huge swaths of the Christian faith discard truth and become utterly irrelevant in the world and really good for nothing. So I think the salt part is holding on to biblical truth. What does the Bible say about who God is, who we are, what our problem is, what our solution is, how we worship him, how we're to live our lives in, in, in accordance to God's law as an act of worship, Uh, Come what may. That's the salt part. Do we do that pretty good? Pretty good at that part. But the light part, the light part, in case we're confused, the light is specifically equated to good works that we do in front, in the view of unbelievers. The good works, uh, the light is that we do good works so that people give glory to the Father who is in heaven. They will see what we do in and through the world, uh, and they'll be forced to say, man, there's something about those Christians. Uh, And that calls us to be in community and to be part of communities that aren't our Christian bubble. And if we're confused about like what that, you know, what those good works before others may be, Jesus goes on a little bit later to say, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what the Jews really believed at the time that Jesus was there. The Jews were utterly separate and everyone else was utterly bad and they were to be separate from them and hate them. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He just quoted the covenant of common grace from Genesis 8 and 9, didn't he? He's saying your Father in heaven does good and loves these people, and you are called to do the same. Have the family likeness so that people will see through you what God is really like. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? 
And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, the mission and the purpose of the church is not to barricade ourselves within the building, throwing up intellectual and cultural barriers that other people have a difficult crime crossing over, while we spend all of our energy perfecting our theology and congratulating ourselves for being so precise. It is not enough to shout truth at people over the barricade, if we even manage to get around doing that much. But salt and light work together. That's why Jesus puts them together. The mission and purpose of the church is to disperse, to be a modern diaspora, to go out into the world like golden threads interwoven in a large fabric or tapestry, to go out into the worlds and the surrounding community and share life with them, and to be the preserving nature of salt, holding on to truth and living according to it so that people see how that plays out in real life. Uh, but also looking for opportunities to love people and serve people, to be involved in their lives, to be part of blessing them so that they'll know what the character of God is really like, that God is not an evil ogre, that God is not mean-spirited, capricious, and judgmental, that God is a God of love who loves his creatures, loves his creation so much that he has personally come into his creation and lived a perfect life that he gives us as a gift and dies on the cross, who's murdered by his own creation to win for us our salvation. That's the image of God that we're supposed to be presenting and showing people. And when we put those two things together, salt and light, I believe we have every expectation to see God do amazing things in and through us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the beauty and the majesty of it. You show us, Lord, your character. Uh, you are a God that is abounding in loving kindness, that you are slow to anger, that you are patient. Lord, that you bless those who love you to the thousandth generation. But you will by no means uh, exonerate the guilty outside of the blood of Jesus, which is available to anyone who would humbly say, I need it. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us, your children, uh, see that and, and as an act of worship to you, as an act of gratitude and love to you for what you've already done for us, that we would go out into the world, that we would forsake our own comfort, um, and that we would live in the world in such a way that people would see you and know you. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us to see a thousand people come to your name through our ministry here at ResPres over the course of decades. And we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand, would you, and let's sing as we approach the Lord's table.